be here uh, this afternoon in person. There's been a few times it has been remotely because of COVID and we've been over in Ulster and you've been gathered wherever listening on but uh, it's nice to be back here in person and have the opportunity of ministering the word of God and we welcome those that are joining online as well and we're thankful for those who can tune in that particular way and we trust the Lord will bless uh, your soul as well as we gather around the word of God. We're coming to this fourth chapter of the prophecy of Zechariah as has already been read and we're just going to bow together in prayer and take a moment and seek the Lord for his help and his blessing. Our God and Father we're thankful today that we are able to gather in this fashion, come around the Word of God. We have the opportunity of reading the Word of God and meditating upon it. We thank Thee for Thy Word Thou hast given and those things that Thou hast revealed to us. And we pray, Lord, that we might be those who are like those Christians in Berea who search the Scriptures daily, whether these things are so. Give to us, Lord, that spirit, that spirit of study and search, that we might Seek to understand what thou hast revealed to us in the word of God. And this afternoon we pray for help. Lord, we cannot come to thy word with our own understanding and our own mindset. We need help from heaven. We need enlightenment. We need instruction from the Holy Spirit. And therefore we seek thy face just now and pray for that help and for that ministry of the Spirit of God. That the one who is the author of these words would now come and be the interpreter and the, um, the applier of these truths to all of our hearts. And as we listen and consider, we pray that we might know the Lord drawing nigh and granting us thy blessing. Do remember these meetings, remember the work of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony. We thank thee for it and for all that it seeks to do in making these matters known and highlighting these matters and we pray Lord whether it is by meetings or by publications and other means we ask that Lord thou indeed will be pleased to bless and use the word of God as it does go forth and we pray that there might be that interest stirred in the hearts of thy people even with regards to those things we know the coming of the Lord draweth nigh and Lord it is our desire that we would be those who would be instructed of thee and that that day would not come upon us unawares that we would not be overcome because we do not know what thy word teaches so lord come and instruct us and teach us we pray and bless this ministry we ask for we pray this day in jesus name amen amen, amen. we're thinking this afternoon about the candlestick and the olive trees that are before us here in this particular chapter of the Word of God. This is the manner in which the Lord has chosen to speak unto Zechariah, and Zechariah in turn speak unto those of his own generation, and also you and I as well, because these words are recorded for us in the Scriptures, and therefore they come down to us as well, uh, for our benefit, for our admonition also. And when you think about these visions that are found at the beginning of the book of Zechariah, sometimes people may even ask the question, well, why does the Lord not just speak about it in clear and simple terms? Well, the Lord has his purposes and his reasons for doing so. 
it certainly stirs a spirit of study and that is something that ought to be found in every Christian that we ought to search out these things. But the Lord was going to awaken the attention of his people and get their attention by setting forth his word in these particular ways. And he was going to encourage in them a humble reverence for his word and a humble inquiry into it as well. And by the aid of these visions, he was going to establish his word in their mind. We have the great privilege of having the word of God written before us. It wasn't necessarily the case that those who were listening to Zechariah had the word written down. So the Lord puts it into vision form as a, a means of it. Uh, staying in their memory and and being held by their uh, memory and being able to retain it. So there's many reasons why the Lord would set forth his word and his truth in these particular ways. But they certainly all uh, can be explained and uh, considered with that verse 13 of chapter 1 in mind. It says, The Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So these are good words and comfortable words and when we come this afternoon to think about the candlestick we certainly want to look at it in that particular way. These are good words, comfortable words, encouraging words. The Lord was setting something out for the comfort of his people. A people that had come back from captivity and then had known discouragement over those years when nothing was being done in the building of the temple. There was all that enthusiasm at the beginning when they returned and the fact that they had been given permission to rebuild the temple. Uh, It all started off with much enthusiasm but it wasn't too long until the opposition arose and very soon the work has to stop and there's only the foundations that were laid. And for a, a period of time that went on, nothing was being done with regards to the Lord's house at all. The people were concentrating on their own uh, homes, as we know from Haggai, there is that challenge that went out wide well ye and sealed houses, and the Lord's house was just a bare foundation with nothing taking place. So, from a great spirit of enthusiasm with which they started out, they have descended now into lethargy, even discouragement. So, the prophet uh, Zechariah, along with his contemporary Haggai, is sent by the Lord to stir up the people. To focus them again upon what was important for them to do. And even to encourage them to press on with the work. So they are good words and they are most certainly comfortable words. Now when we come to this fourth chapter and the vision of the candlestick. You'll notice that it is connected with Zerubbabel. His name appears here a number of times down through this uh, chapter. Verses 6 and 7 and verse 9 and verse 10 you will find reference to Zerubbabel by name. And it is important to uh, take note of that and also then to remember that in the previous chapter, chapter 3, his namesake Joshua was mentioned. So the Lord has something to say to both of these men. They're very much to the fore in leading the work of God in those times and having a place of leadership and an example, speaking to the people, getting involved in, in the work. So the Lord has something to say to Joshua there and that was considered uh, last time uh, as these meetings were taking place and today we're thinking about uh, Zerubbabel but the two visions complement each other in, in many ways that the Lord is saying something about Joshua now he's directing his words particularly to Zerubbabel 
And we want to consider what it is that uh, the Lord has to, to say. In, in many of these visions, there's, there's three things that uh, occur. Um, there's a description of some things that are given. There's an inquiry by the prophet Zechariah as to what the meaning of these things are. And then there's an explanation that is given by the angel. So there's a few simple steps that we can follow on each one of those occasions. And that's really what we're going to do uh, this afternoon. We're going to think of, first of all, well, what did Zachariah see in the vision? Then we're going to think about his inquiry of the Lord as to what this means. And then, well, what did the Lord reveal to him about these things and how are we to understand them? And with regard to what we have here in chapter 4, you'll notice there, first of all, the description of what Zechariah saw, that he is awakened out of his sleep, and he is caused to look, and the question then is asked of him in verse 2, what seest thou? And his reply is, I, I, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes, to the seven lamps which are upon the top of it, and two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on upon the left side thereof. So when we think about the candlestick, our thoughts immediately are going to go back to the tabernacle and to the temple and to the taber- the lampstand that was part of the furniture of the tabernacle and later on the temple. But there's some slight modifications here to what Zechariah saw. He didn't see something exactly as it was given to us way back in Exodus and then given to David as the plan of the temple was given to David and then built by Solomon. There's three significant modifications. First of all, it tells us there that this candlestick that Zechariah saw had a bowl at the top of it which served as a reservoir for storing the oil. And from that reservoir of oil there was transported down then really by gravity it would seem to these seven lamps of the candlestick. So that's the first thing that is different is that there is a bowl at the top of it as a reservoir. The second difference was that the candlestick and the lampstand had seven pipes connected to the seven lamps through which the oil flowed. So... There's something here again that is somewhat uh, unique. And if you look at the marginal reference against this particular uh, verse, and it says there that seven several pipes to the lamps. Seven several pipes to the lamps. Which suggests that there were seven pipes going to each of the seven lamps. So it's not just a matter of seven pipes coming down and they go one, they all separate out and one goes to, to each of the seven lamps. It would suggest that there is, a, there is a fullness of oil. There is a flood of oil that is flowing in here to each of these lamps that is going to enable it to, to burn brightly. In fact, there is a, a little phrase there in the original that seven and seven is actually what is given to us in, in these words. So the suggestion is, from my understanding here of it, is that there is a total of 49 conduits that are actually set before us here in this lampstand. Very different to what that lampstand was like in the tabernacle in the, in the temple. So there's, there's seven pipes coming down to each lamp and there's seven lamps and therefore we have 49 conduits 
flooding in with oil into this lampstand in order that it's going to burn brightly and it's going to burn with a fullness and a brightness that hasn't been seen before. And that will give us in due time something of an insight into well, what does this uh, refer to and what is it symbolizing for us. The third difference if we're thinking here about these differences that there is between this particular candlestick that Zachariah saw and the one in the tabernacle, there is the reference to the two olive trees that are either side, verse 3, one on the right side and the other on the left side. And it tells us that there is a top that comes from these uh, two. If we go down to verse 12, where it says, And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches? which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves. So these two olive trees have got a top each in them and they're flooding in the oil into those little bowls that there are at the top of each lamp. So there's all of this set before us symbolizing this oil that is coming in abundance into the candlestick that's going to burn and it's going to burn brightly. Now we're reminded if we think back to the candlestick, we, it's Leviticus chapter 24, but we hardly need to turn it up. But it tells us back there with regards to the lampstand that was in the tabernacle that it was filled and looked after manually by the priests. The priests had to prepare the oil and come in and so look after the, uh, the lampstand and maintain it so that it never would go out at, at any time. But there's something different, slightly different suggested here in this picture as we will hopefully come to see as we work our way uh, along uh, the, the, this afternoon. Because this particular candlestick I think is constructed in a way that suggests that it doesn't require human agency to sustain it. That was something that was important back in the tabernacle. The priests had a ministry, had a function. They were directed there in Leviticus chapter 4 that that was part of their work to go in daily and make sure that they trimmed the lamp and that it had sufficient oil. But there's something I think that is remarkable here that's slightly different that suggests again to us some a point of, inf- a point of emphasis that we ought to be considering. Now Zechariah inquired as to the meaning of what he saw there in verse 4. We read that he said to the angel, I answered and spake to the angel, talked with me saying, What are these, my Lord? What are these? And there's a a reminder if we want a point of application uh, from that particular verse and that particular thought that it is good to ask the Lord for insights. In fact, it's absolutely necessary to ask the Lord for insights into his word. There are many things we do not understand. We don't know everything about the word of God. And how could we? We're only finite creatures and the Lord is infinite and he is in his mercy and condescension to us, revealed to us many things in his word. But there's things that we miss. There's things we do not understand. There's things we do not see clearly. We need to ask the Lord for insight. We need to take the spirit that is found here in Zechariah in verse 4 when he said to the angel that talked with him, What are these, my Lord? Take the humble place. Is that not suggested there by the words, my Lord? The prophet isn't in any way exalting himself. Rather, he's taking the humble place. He's acknowledging there's things I don't understand here. I see what is before me because he's been asked to relate it. 
as to what he sees and he has given us some of the particular details of the candlestick that he has observed but now he acknowledges I don't understand what this is I don't know what it represents I don't know what the message is and he's coming and asking the Lord that the Lord might teach him these things and that's a very necessary uh, spirit to have in us all in fact absolutely essential in every child of God that we have that humble spirit whereby we inquire of the Lord I'm reminded of those words over in Isaiah 45 and verse 11. Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. But particularly that phrase there, ask me of things to come concerning my sons. And there's one particular uh, way in which we can certainly inquire of the Lord and ask the Lord to reveal certain things to us when we think about the, the ministry of Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony and what we're thinking about this afternoon with regards to these visions and looking to understand what it is the Lord is saying about future times. Well, over there in Isaiah, he's telling us, ask me, he says, ask me of things concerning my sons. And we are to come with that humble spirit here exemplified in Zechariah and ask the Lord, Lord, what do these things mean? Give us insight, give us understanding. Take the humble place and say, Lord, I don't, I don't understand. I've read, I take note of the details, but I don't understand what it is that's being set before me. And the Lord will certainly teach us and instruct us. Now you'll notice as well that in verse 5 the angel replied, Knowest thou not what these be? And that brings us on to another particular point of application. That suggests that the Lord is saying to Zechariah, well maybe you should know some of these things. It's one thing to inquire, but then maybe the Lord is coming and saying, well you're both a priest and you're both a prophet, should you not know some of these things? And he certainly should know some of these things because they're represented, some of them to a, a degree, is rep, uh, are represented in the tabernacle when we think about the lampstand or the candlestick that there is there. But the Lord could come to us and say, well, maybe you should know that there are things that we, we should be aware of and that maybe we're long enough saved and we have the word of God that maybe there are some things that we ought to know and should know and should have learned before now. And we have to confess, well, we've been negligent in some way and we've not given heed to God's word in the way we ought. We've not sought out things the way we ought. And that's certainly true with regards to the, those matters around the coming of the Lord. There's many Christians and they don't know. There's many preachers too. They don't know. They want to avoid preaching on subjects like this because they don't know and maybe they're afraid of being found out in some particular way and maybe the Lord would come to come to either a Christian or even a preacher and say well you ought to know as he did to Zechariah knowest thou not what these things be there are some things the Lord expects us to know there are certainly things that we don't know and we see through a glass darkly in many ways but Maybe it is the case and other things the Lord would say, well, you ought to know. You are long enough saved. You've had your Bible. You've been able to read it. You have it in your mother tongue. Would the Lord come and then say to us, well, you ought to know some of these things. These are things that are revealed in the word of God. 
And it is sad when, when people don't have an interest in the Word of God generally. And Christians are sometimes slack in reading the Word of God. And I think it could be said, it's a, I don't think it's a conclusion that would be contradicted in the day and age that we live in, that people don't read half as near as much as they once did. They have a much shorter attention span and and it seems as well even a lower reading age than ever before when you hear of people publishing various materials and and it's amazing how how low the, the, the reading age is in order even to get an adult to read it. Never mind a, a child or a young person. And sadly we live in such a time when there isn't the reading of the word of God as, as once there was. So maybe the Lord would indeed in, in this day and age have good reason to come and say, well, you ought to know these things. They're in the word of God. And we ought to give time and effort and regard to these, uh, these things. But that's what the, the angel said to, to Zechariah. Do you not know what these things are? And he had to be honest in verse 5 and say, no. At least he was honest. At least he was straightforward with the Lord and he said, Lord, I don't know. I don't understand what it is. I don't know what it's been rep- what's been represented and set before me. And then that brings us to the application here of these things to Zerubbabel, at least in, in uh, one way. And beginning there at verse 6, this is the first verse that mentions Zerubbabel by name. And... He is the one who is the, the governor. He, he comes from the, the, the royal tribe. If we go back into his ancestry and he has got this position. And he is the one here who is mentioned by the Lord. As the Lord begins to teach Zechariah and show him some of these things as to what this is all about. We've mentioned Joshua in the previous chapter. And how these two chapters complement one another. That there in chapter 3 we read of Joshua. Now we're thinking about Zerubbabel in this particular uh, place. Because it's under his hand that this rebuilding project is going to be conducted. And then as we know it is stalled for a time. And there's some words that are given here to encourage Zerubbabel. They're, They're given to encourage him. And he's reminded here in verse 6, first of all, that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. <laughs> That's the first thing that he's going to be reminded of. How, how is this work going to be carried on? Remember, Zechariah's ministry, Haggai's ministry as well, is designed to stir them up and get them back to the building so that the temple would be completed. And the Lord is saying, Zerubbabel will not be by your might. I take the the thought there of might to refer to military strength. And then not by power, it's human cunning, craft, ingenuity. It's neither going to be either of those. It's not going to be by might. It's not going to be by some power. It's not going to be by the power of the Medes and Persians. Even though they had permitted them to to start rebuilding. That's not how the temple is going to be uh, rebuilt and completed. It's not going to be by human power in any way. But it's going to be by the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord is going to bring this, this about. So the angel of the Lord is assuring Zerubbabel here. That the work that was presently going on was not being carried about by human means. That's not how it's going to be advanced. Now, the people were engaged in it, as we know. 
That was part of the ministry of Zechariah and Haggai, that they were to stir up the people in order to get them involved in the work again. But it's going to be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit who was there among them. If you go back to Haggai chapter 2 verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. So Haggai has had that ministry and he's reminding them that the spirit of the Lord is still among them. And now Zechariah is taking up the same uh, theme and from the Lord he has given this message that he is to deliver unto Zerubbabel, not by might, not by, nor by power, but by my spirit. It will be the work of the spirit. And when we think about the oil in this chapter, we know that the oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So when there's so much about the oil coming from these olive trees and into the, the candlestick, we're not surprised that there's going to be a reference in the chapter about the Holy Spirit, because the oil symbolizes the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit and therefore there is at the very beginning of this explanation to Zechariah that he's going to pass on to Zerubbabel there's a reference to the Spirit it'll be by the help of the Spirit how do we do anything for God it's not by might nor power it's by the Spirit of the Lord the Lord must be in it and if the Lord is in it then it will, it will accomplish what the Lord intends for it to accomplish. And if the Lord is not in it, it wouldn't matter what you have. You can have all the resources that you could uh, turn to and, and even of all the people involved that you could want as well and yet it will come to nothing if the Lord is not in it. There's that lad little, uh, is it a chorus, little as much when God is in it. And that is true. If God is in something, it will go somewhere. And if God is not in it, it doesn't matter what else it has. It will go nowhere because it's not of the Lord. And that is very true of that, that building work that they were to recommence. If the Lord is in it, it's going to be accomplished. And therefore, there is the reminder here directed towards Zerubbabel that that work of rebuilding and bringing back that place of worship for the people of God in Old Testament times is going to be a divine work. Yes, carried out by human agency, but ultimately it's going to be a divine work. The Lord is going to be in it. Now being a divine work, the angel here indicates to Zechariah that all of those would-be adversaries are not going to be successful in their attempts to stop it this time. They did stop the work, as we know. After Zerubbabel returned, there was that long period where the work was stopped and it's only beginning now again through the ministry of Haggai and, and Zechariah. But this time it's not going to be stopped. It's not going to be stopped. If you go on in there to verse 7 of this chapter. Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel thou shalt become a plain. And he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. The reference there to a great mountain. Well, the, the mountain, certainly in the prophetic scriptures, often symbolizes governmental power. And you can think about it in that uh, particular way. Sometimes that text is, and there's no, there's no harm in that, but it's taken in a more general sense. I've done it myself, uh, taking it in a general sense, in that there's, there's opposition or there's hindrances. 
mountains as as you think about mountains of difficulty or opposition or whatever we we can take it in in that particular way but if we think specifically as to how the term mountain is used in the prophetic scriptures to refer to governmental power then is this what is particularly in view that the Lord is conveying this message to Zerubbabel the governmental power of the day which was the means of the Medes and Persians will not step in to hinder this work they will not step in again and close this work down and hinder it that's the assurance that the Lord gives because that's how the work was brought to an end uh, prior there were those who complained in Jerusalem and they made representation to the Medes and Persians and search was made and, and therefore then the edict went out that the work was to stop. And there's this assurance that is being directed on this occasion to Zerubbabel, it won't happen this time. The Lord will see to it that it won't happen this time. And these things have, have a further bearing to future times as well. And we'll pick up on some of this just in a moment or two. But we're, we're thinking here about what's exa- uh, specifically said and directed towards Zerubbabel here. As the angel of the Lord begins to explain to Zechariah what it is that he has seen. And what's the application to it. And there is a, a, a first application here to Zerubbabel and what the Lord is going to, to do. You think even of the two great mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, that are mentioned in in the Word of God. It was from Mount uh, Sinai that the Lord descended and legislated for Israel. Mount Zion is mentioned in the Psalms and in the Prophets, going to be the seat of divine authority and the rule of Christ in a future day. It's the place of, of governmental authority. The mountain is associated uh, with that. So whatever the opposition is going to be, right up to governmental level, none of them are ever going to be able to hinder Zerubbabel and the work. The Lord's going to be in it this time and it's going to be carried on through to completion. And every obstacle to the work of this rebuilding is going to be removed. And it tells us there that Zerubbabel is going to get to the place where the headstone is going to be put on the temple. And there's going to be this great shout that will go up, grace, grace unto it. There's a testimony that it was of the Lord's doing. When that final piece the headstone or the capstone maybe today is uh, what we would refer to a building being finished out and and formally completed we might talk about a capstone but it's the same thing here that is mentioned in verse 7 as a headstone it's the final piece of of the building way up in the the upper echelons of the building it's going to be completed and, and here's the testimony that's going to be raised When that happens with the temple, grace, grace unto it. It's all of grace. It's all of God. And the Christian certainly is someone who can always utter those words. What other words could we utter for what the Lord has done? For we are not worthy, nor have we done anything to save ourselves. It is all of the Lord, and therefore the testimony is indeed of grace. And when we think about that spiritual house that is mentioned over in In the New Testament, that habitation of God, that uh, believers are living stones built into that particular edifice. Well, the cry can go up there as well. Grace, grace. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. We're in Christ today because of grace. No other reason. Not because we deserved it or earned it or merited. Not because we were more inclined to believe than someone else. None of those things were, were true. Our heart was as dead 
as any were. We were blind. We were full of enmity against him as much as anyone. The only difference is the grace of God. <clears throat> what is it that explains how even individuals, <clears throat> maybe sitting beside each other, under the sound of the gospel, growing up under the sound of the gospel, maybe in Sabbath school or Bible classes, in, in Lord's Day services, can hear the same message and be taught the same things. And today one is saved, going on with God, and the other is out in the world. It is the grace of God that explains the difference. That's the only explanation. It's the grace of God, and that ought to humble us. And we know that, that little phrase there, go I but for the grace of God. And it's true. When you look out and see those that even heard the same gospel, were taught the same thing, sat in the same Sunday school classes or Bible classes, sat under the word of God on a Sabbath day as it was ministered, and they're away from God and no thought of the Lord at all. It humbles the Christian to think, well, it's of God, it's of grace. I'm no better, no better than anyone else. So we can identify here with the cry that goes up here in verse 7. This testimony that will be raised when that building was going to be finished. It's all of grace. And that will indeed be uh, a theme of praise for uh, the Saviour. Certainly in time to come when we're gathered home and we're with him. It's all of sovereign grace. It's all of sovereign grace. But then there's a, there's a further message that is given here to uh, the prophet to pass on to Zerubbabel as well. Verses 8, 9 and 10. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me saying. So there's a further message also that is directed towards uh, Zerubbabel. This further word of assurance is given to encourage him as to what it is he is to do and the work that he is to be involved in. He, he has to be convinced in his own mind. How could he ever convince the people when he wants to labour and work under him if he's not convinced in his own mind? And how important that is. We, we need to know in our own hearts, in our own mind, how can we witness for Christ? How can we speak for, for the Lord if we're not sure of these things ourselves? We need to be sure. And the Lord would have Zerubbabel to, to be uh, sure of these things so that then he can in turn go and speak to those who are labouring under him. So they're designed to encourage him. But they're also designed to silence the, the sceptics against the day of small things. Because in verse 9 it says, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. So there's the word of encouragement unto uh, Zerubbabel him, himself. But then verse 10. For who hath despised the day of small things? Who hath despised the day of small things? And there were those. There were those who despised. They, they looked around and saw the foundation laid out. And they said oh it's not like what it was before. It's not like what it was in Solomon's time. That great magnificent temple of Solomon. This is nowhere like it. And it tells us that some of the older men, they were, they were weeping because it wasn't like what they knew before. And the younger ones, they were weeping because, well, the thing had started and they had never seen anything like this at all. Never mind the magnificence of the old temple that had been destroyed. But the question, the challenge is, is put out there in verse 10. Who, who, who has despised the day of small things? Well, there were, there were some. 
The Lord is uttering words that, that had an application. There were those that despised the day of small things. And there's always a tendency to do that. There's a tendency today as well to do that in God's work, despise the day of small things. Mm-hmm. And people are only interested in, in the large crowd, in the large, com- the large church. Sometimes I think that, that people are inclined to follow after that because they can get lost in the crowd. They don't have to do very much if there's a large crowd about. Whereas if they're in a small work, well maybe then they have to, to throw their lot in and, and get involved and play their part. And it's more obvious that they have to play their part. But the Lord says, who, who is despised the day of small things? We're, we're not to despise the day of small things. The Lord was in the day of small things. The Lord is with Zerubbabel. And it might look as if it was a small thing. But as we know, there was something even about that temple that was being built in Zechariah's uh, time by Zerubbabel that was going to be magnificent. We're not going to go to Haggai, for uh, that's not our, our studies here uh, this afternoon. But you know that there was that promise of the desire of all nations that would come. The Lord was going to be in that, that second temple. So... Why should they despise the day of small things? It, it mightn't be as it was before. That was true. It wasn't going to reflect at that time the magnificence of, Sol- the magnificence of Solomon's day. But the Lord had a purpose and the Lord was in it. And may we not be discouraged in the day of small things. May we not despise the day of small things. And I suppose there is that tendency within us uh, to say, oh, we want, we want something different. We want something better. Oh, to live in days when... There was far greater interest and far more attendance in the things of God and uh, in the house of God. Well, the Lord hasn't called us to live in such times. There are some believers that are given that privilege to live in such times, but we are not. We're not called to, to, to live in such times. We're called to labor today. We're called to labor in the times that the Lord has put us in. And therefore, if the day is a day of small things, well, let us be faithful in small things. And look to the Lord to, to bring about a change. But the Lord here is going to encourage um, Zerubbabel in such a way that there is the promise that he'll finish the work that he has started. That he'll finish the work that he has started. The plummet will be in his, his hands. He's going to be involved in all of this. And as we have already noticed, the capstone is going to go on it and it's going to be finished And the Lord is going to have his eye upon it all along. As it finishes off there in verse 10. Where it speaks about the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. The Lord was in it. Watching over it. Sovereignly watching over it. The seven eyes of the Lord are a suggestion of his omniscient knowledge of all things. And as I say, little is much when God is in it. It's more more important to have the Lord than anything else. If you have the Lord, even in a day of small things, you have all you need. You have all you need. That's all you need. You, You could have vast numbers and yet not on the Lord and what have you. You have nothing. You'll have nothing. It will all just fade away and disappear. But if you have the Lord, even in a day of small things, well then, something will be accomplished. Something will be finished. 
And that's the thought, or one particular thought here that comes out of these words to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, something's going to be finished. Something's going to be completed. There is a work that you've been given to do, and by the Lord's help, you'll see it through to the end, and it'll come to a conclusion, and the work will be done. And what better commendation could there be than that? That you finish the work that you've been given to do. There's a greater one than Zerubbabel who finished the work that was given him to do, and that's our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And his, his work may well have been looked upon at the, at the beginning as a small work, a day of small things. When he was arrested and, and put to death, he didn't have very many disciples. Many of them that had followed him by that time had forsaken him, turned away from him, as we know. He had just a little, a little company, a little handful at the end. But it was just the harbinger of far greater things that were, were yet to come. So let us stay the course. Let us be faithful in our day, whatever the day is. Let us be faithful, knowing that if it's a work that is given to us by the Lord, we'll then look to him for strength to finish our course and look to the Lord to do something with what has been done. That brings us then to the latter part, the latter few verses here of this particular chapter. And what I want us to think here about is the application of this vision to the end times. Because eager to know further the meaning of this vision, of this exceptional candlestick and the two olive trees that are attached to it. You'll notice there in verse 11 that Zechariah asks a further question. What are these two olive trees? Upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof. So Zechariah hasn't got an explanation that satisfies him yet as to, well, what are these? There's other matters that he has been thinking about, how the Lord is going to be among them and so on. The Spirit of God is going to, to be among them. But Zechariah hasn't had his curiosity and his interest satisfied enough with regards to these. So he, this time, asks the angel the question, well, what are these? What does this represent? These two olive trees, one on either side of the candlestick. What, what is this all about? His inquiry was repeated uh, another time in verse 12. What are these? What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? So there's a double inquiry here that is made by uh, Zerubbabel. And it brings us to think about an application that goes beyond Zerubbabel's time. Because this book teaches that there is indeed a connection with uh, Israel, even at that time, in Zechariah's day, Zerubbabel's day, and with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can go back to chapter 1, verse 17, there where it tells us in that particular verse, the Lord shall, well maybe... We'll just read the whole verse, crying yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. So this is taking us on out into the future, because as we know, there was going to be a scattering of them for a time. But the Lord says, I'm going to choose them again. I'm going to yet comfort them. Chapter 2 of Zechariah, verses 12 and 13, the last two verses, the Lord shall inherit Judah, his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent to all flesh before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. 
So there's a time when the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land, a holy land, a holy city, a holy people. Chapter 3, verses, 10, uh, verses 9 and 10 as well. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. It has never happened as yet, but it will one day. In that day, verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, saith the Lord of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbour under the vine and under the fig tree? So there's this, these little indications along the way here that there's, there's something away in the future still that the Lord is going to do with this people. There's an application for the here and now. Joshua, Zerubbabel, the times of Zechariah. But then there's also these pointers on out into a future time. And that's what we're thinking about here as well as we come down to the end of this particular chapter 4. The candlestick, now the two olive trees that are associated with it, they're pouring in oil. And this brings us back to the thought that I was mentioning a little while ago about a fullness. There's a fullness here. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. So we're thinking about a time of fullness when the Spirit of God is going to be in, among Israel. Who do and what does the, the two olive trees represent? Well, they could represent those two individuals that have been, thinking, uh, been thought about here in these two chapters, Joshua and Zerubbabel. But then Joshua and Zerubbabel are but pictures of Christ. They're but pictures of Christ. They prefigure the Messiah in all his, his glory. Because if you go over to chapter 6 of Zechariah and verse 13, and not to intrude into Mr. Douglas's subjects next month, but chapter 6 of Zechariah, verse 13, it says, Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. It speaks there about the one who's going to sit on the throne and rule upon the throne, also be a priest upon the throne. And there you bring together those two uh, offices of Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua is the high priest, Zerubbabel is the, 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 the civic leader. Bring them together. There's one who's going to sit upon the throne as a priest, a kingly priest. And that ultimately is, is Jesus Christ. So Joshua and Zerubbabel and even these two chapters that deal with these, these men are foreshadowing Christ. And all his, his messianic fullness. But then there's tied into that this thought about the candlestick. Originally in the temple symbolizing Christ as the light. Taken as a, a symbol of the people of Israel as well. As you know the menorah is the historic symbol of Israel. Long before the star of David ever was associated with the, the Jews, the menorah was taken to be a representative of the nation. There they are as a light, a seven-branch candlestick shining as a light in the world. They've never really shone as a light in the world. But one day they will, and they'll do it in all the fullness of the Spirit of God. That's what's being set before us here, ultimately. And whatever the application to Zerubbabel, there's that which takes us away out into the future, what the Lord is yet going to do. And a fullness, a day of fullness that's going to come amongst them. And the Lord is going to make them to shine as a light. 
He's going to make them to shine as a light. The Spirit of God is going to be poured out upon them in abundance and they will shine for God and shine for Christ in the world like they've never shone before. And we can think of that candlestick in, in that regard. Isaiah 42, 6, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, will hold thine hand and will uh, keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. And one day the Lord indeed is going to, to give them as a light to the Gentiles, as a holy people. Zechariah 8, again, if you go on a little bit further in this prophecy, verse 3, Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. A city of truth, a holy mountain, a holy people, a holy land. There's going to be a time of fullness when the Lord is going to come among them and he's going to work among them by his Holy Spirit. And there's, there's many verses in, in the, the, the prophets that we could turn to that, that brings out that particular thought about the Lord pouring out something upon them. And we started off thinking about this abundance of oil. These various conduits that are bringing oil into these seven lamps. There's a, there's a fullness of oil and there's a day coming of the fullness of the Spirit among the people of God of ancient time. If I can turn you to some, at least read some of these texts of Scripture. Isaiah thirty-two fifteen. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high and the wilderness be a fruitful field and the fruitful field be counted for a forest. That's not going to happen until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. Isaiah 32 verse 15. Those well-known words, Isaiah 44 verses 3 and 4. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my Spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Again, foreshadowing the day of great outpouring of the Spirit of God. Isaiah 59, 21, As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee, and my words which I have put in thy mouth, shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of thy, the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. One more, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. So there's a time of outpouring, a time of fullness that is coming. And as a result of this fullness of the Spirit of God coming upon them and the work that the Spirit of God is going to do among them, they're going to shine as a light. Like they've never shone before in the world. A light for truth. If we go back there, maybe that... Um, Chapter 8 and verse 3 is, is a, a verse just worth underscoring. I know someone else will take it up at a later study in these series of meetings, but it says there in Zechariah 8 and 3, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. How is that going to come about? By the Spirit of the Lord being poured out in abundance. And a work that the Spirit of God is going to do among them. And he's going to make Israel to shine. They're going to be a city of, the, of truth. They're going to be a light. The holy mountain is going to be a light. A light among the world. There's some Psalms and prophets as well that suggest, give to us that suggestion about, uh, about the light. In Psalm 67, 
says God, be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that thy way be be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. We know that has never happened. Cause thy face to shine upon us, that thy way may be known upon earth. God's way will not be known upon the earth as saving health, not fully known among all the nations until he pours out his spirit upon his ancient people and they shine as that light. I finish off with this verse, Isaiah 61, where it says, Arise, shine, for thy light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light has come. The Spirit of God has come among them. And he has enlightened their heart as we know. He's going to take the veil from off their eyes on that particular day. And they're going to see the one whom they have pierced. And they're going to shine themselves then. They'll shine as a light to a Gentile world. So there is great encouragement. I started off by saying that, and tying that in with chapter 1 verse 13, that these were good words and comfortable words that the Lord was giving to Zechariah, giving to him in, in vision form, but teaching him and instructing him as to what these things mean. And what an encouragement then to think about, not only the short term, but a way out into the future as well. God had not finished with them. God had not finished with them. There was a work the Lord was going to do and complete among them. And we too can be encouraged by God's word. The Lord will complete his, his work. There's a work that he's going to do in each one of our lives as we know. When Paul said that, the work that he'd begun, he'll one day complete, perfected in the day of Jesus Christ. And there's a work he's going to do in us. And we've been thinking about what he's going to do among his ancient people someday. Well, it's but a picture as well as we know about what he's going to do in us. He's going to complete the work he's begun. And he'll do it for his glory. And he'll do it all by his grace. I trust the Lord has blessed his word this afternoon as we've thought upon it for a little while. And that it will remain with us. We'll bow together in prayer just as we finish uh, bringing his word. Our Father, we do pray that thou would bless thy word. <coughs> Write it upon our hearts this afternoon. We thank thee for the opportunity to consider these things. And Lord, we praise thee that the Lord will indeed, uh, will indeed do a great work. And we're not to despise a day of small things, for the Lord will do great things in a future day. And Lord, as that was true of Israel, so it is of, of this day that we live in. Lord, we live in a day of small things. Thy cause is under reproach and seems to be on retreat as well. And Lord, there's, there's not, at least outwardly, the same uh, numbers as, as there once was in the work of God. The Lord, may we realize it's more important to know the Lord amongst us than anything else. So come, we pray, and tarry with us this afternoon. Bless us even as we finish out this particular meeting and then on into the evening time as well. Be amongst us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We do give thanks for those encouragements from the words of God.
pray that he will indeed carry these things through until that day when they are fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. We conclude by singing hymn number 140. This is a hymn by Samuel Pregelis, a great student of the word of God and of prophecy. 140, 140.